Book One, Chapter Eleven of Strangers and Pilgrims by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Strangers and Pilgrims, Chapter Eleven. Tis the pest of love that fairest joys give most unrest, that things of delicate and tenderest worth are swallowed all and made a seared death by one consuming flame. It doth immerse and suffocate true blessings in a curse. Half happy, by comparison of bliss, is miserable. That Christmas at Hawley was not a peculiarly festive season. Mr. Luttrell, being happily rid of his sister, was indisposed for father society, preferring to bask in the genial glow of his hearth, untrammelled by the duties of hospitality. So the Luttrell girls sat around the fire on Christmas evening, in a dismal circle, while their father, silent and motionless as the sculptured figure of some household god, slumbered peacefully in his easy chair, behind the banner screen that had shaded the fair features of Aunt Chevenix. "'I really do wish that boy-baby had lived!' exclaimed Blanche, after a long silence, alluding to an infant scion of the house of Luttrell, which had perished untimely. "'Of course, I know he'd have been a nuisance to us all. Brothers always are. Still, he'd have been something.' He must have imparted a little variety to the tenor of our miserable lives. Papa would have been obliged to send him to Oxford or Cambridge, where he would have got into debt for shirt studs and meerschaum pipes and things, no doubt. But he would have brought home nice young men, perhaps, in the long vacation. And that would be some amusement. He might have touted for Papa in a gentlemanly way, and brought home young men to be coached. Blanche! exclaimed Gertrude. You positively grow more revoltingly vulgar in your ideas every day. Oh, let the poor child talk, cried Diana with a stifled yawn. I wonder she's spirit enough left to be vulgar. Any invertebrate creature can be ladylike, but vulgarity requires a certain amount of animal spirits, and I'm sure such a miserable Christmas as this is a damper for anyone's vivacity. Elizabeth said nothing. She sat on a low seat opposite the fire, motionless as her slumbering father, but with her great dark eyes wide open, gazing dreamily at the smouldering yule log which had dropped its white ashes slowly and silently into a deep chasm of dull red coal. She had sat thus for the last half hour, thinking her own thoughts, and taking no part in her sister's desultory snatches of talk. Oh, she sat like patience on a monument, smiling at grief, exclaimed Diana presently, exasperated by this silence. Upon my word, Lizzie, you are not the best of company for a winter's night by the fire. I do not pretend to be good company, replied Elizabeth coolly. Oh, how different it would be if Lord Paulyn were here, said Diana, whose temper had been somewhat soured by the dreariness of that long evening. "'Then you'd be all smiles and bewitchment.' "'I should do my best to entertain a visitor, of course. "'I do not consider myself bound to entertain you.' "'Poor Lizzie,' murmured Diana, with an insolent air of compassion. "'We ought not to be hard on you. "'It is rather a trial for any girl to have a coronet dangled before her eyes in that tantalising manner.' and nothing to come of her conquest after all. Do you mean to say that I ever angled for Lord Paulyn? 
cried elizabeth with a sudden flash of scornful anger or that i could not have him if i chose i mean to say replied diana in a provokingly deliberate manner that you and aunt chevenix tried your very hardest to catch him and did not succeed perhaps you look forward to seeing him in london and subjugating him there but i fancy that if a woman cannot bring an admirer to her feet in the first flush of her conquest she's hardly likely to bring him there later he has time for reflection and distraction you see and a man who has sufficient prudence to keep himself uncommitted as cleverly as lord paulyn did would be the very man to cure himself of a foolish infatuation i don't mean to say anything offensive but of course a marriage with one of us would be a very disadvantageous alliance for a man in his position you are extremely wise my dear di and have acquired your wisdom in the bitter school of experience but i doubt if you are quite infallible and to show you that i am ready to back my opinion as lord paulyn says i will bet you poor dear mamma's pearl necklace my only valuable possession that if he and i live so long i will be lady paulyn before next christmas day a foolish wager to make perhaps when her heart was given utterly to another man but these little sisterly skirmishes always brought out the worst points in elizabeth's character she had been thinking too as she watched the softly dropping ashes of all the grandeurs and pleasures with which she might have surrounded herself at such a season as this were she the wife of viscount paulyn thinking of that dismal old house at ashcombe and the transformation that she might effect there the spacious rooms glowing with warm light filled with pleasant people new furniture splendid draperies life and colour throughout that mansion where now reigned a death-like gloom and greyness as if the dust of many generations had settled and become fixed there covering all things with one sombre hue these visions were strangely sweet to her shallow soul and mingled with the thoughts of those possible triumphs there was always the thought of malcolm ford and the impression that such a marriage would make upon him he would see that at least some one can care for me she said to herself that if i am not good enough for him i may be good enough for his superior in rank and fortune and then came a vision of that tall figure and grave face among the witnesses of her wedding he would take his subordinate part in the service no doubt by the vicar of hawley father of the bride assisted by the reverend malcolm ford oh, he wouldn't care she thought he would not even be angry with me but he would preach me a sermon about my increased means of usefulness he would expect me to become a sister of mercy on a wider scale after that joyless christmas time life seemed to elizabeth luttrell to become almost intolerable by reason of its dreariness she gave up her spasmodic attempts at active usefulness altogether she had emptied her purse for her poor wearied herself in going to and fro between the vicarage and their hovels steeped herself to the lips in their difficulties and sorrows and to some of them at least had contrived to render herself very dear and having done this she all at once abandoned them stayed at home and brooded upon her vexations sat for long hours at her piano playing wild passionate music which seemed like a stormy voice answering her stormy heart let him come to me and remonstrate with me again she said to herself 
looking up with haggard eyes at the drawing-room door, as if she expected to see that tall figure appear at her invocation. "'Let him come to reprove me, and I will tell him that I am tired of working without any earthly reward, that I have neither faith nor patience to labour for a recompense that I am only to win perhaps half a century hence in heaven, and who knows if I should see his face there, or hear his voice praising me.' but the days went by, and Mr. Ford took no heed of this second defection. One thing only gave colour to Elizabeth's life in this hopeless time, and that was the daily service in the big empty church of St. Clement's, at which she saw the cold grave face that had usurped so fatal a power over her soul. Once in every day she must needs see him. Once in every day she must needs hear his voice, and it was to see and hear him that she rose early on those cheerless winter mornings, and shared the devotions of a few feeble old women in poke bonnets, and a sprinkling of maiden ladies with frost-pinched noses showing rosy-tipped beneath their veils. It was not a pure worship which was wafted heavenward with Elizabeth's orisons, rather no worship at all, but an impious adoration of the creature instead of the Creator. In every word in the familiar prayers, Every sentence in the morning lessons, she heard the voice of the man she loved, and nothing more. His voice, with its slow, solemn depths of music. His face, with its earnest eyes forever overlooking her. These were the sole elements of that daily service. She went to church to see and to hear Malcolm Ford, and knew in her heart of hearts that it was for this alone she went, and in some remorseful moments wondered that heaven's swift vengeance did not descend upon so impious a creature. How could I bear my life if I were married to another man, and it were a deadly sin to think of him? she asked herself wonderingly, and then argued with herself that in an utterly new life, a life filled to overflowing with the pleasures that had never yet been within her reach, pleasures that would have all the freshness and delight of novelty, she must surely find it an easy matter to shut Malcolm Ford's image out of her heart. "'In what is he different from all other men, that I should go on lamenting him for ever?' she thought. "'If I lived in the world, I should meet his superiors every day of my life. But living out of the world, seeing only such people as Frederick Melvin and his fellow-creatures, it's hardly wonderful that I think him a demigod.' and then in the next moment, with a passionate scorn of her own arguments, she would exclaim, "'But he is above all other men. There's no one like him in that great world I'm so ignorant of. There's no one else whose coldest word could seem sweeter than the praise of other men. There is no one else whose very shadow across my path could be more to me than the love of all the world besides.' In this blank pause of her life, when all the machinery of her existence, which had for a long time been gradually growing abominable to her by reason of its monotony, seemed all at once to become too hateful for endurance, like a long dusty road, which for a certain distance the pilgrim treads with a kind of hopefulness, until grown footsore and weary long ere the end of his journey, that long white road under the broiling sun, those changeless hedges, that pitiless burning sky, become an affliction hardly to be borne, in this sudden failure of happiness and hope, it was not unnatural that Elizabeth's eyes should turn with some kind of longing to the dazzling prospect perpetually exhibited to them by Aunt Chevenix. 
remember my dearest lizzie wrote that lady whose longest epistles were always addressed to elizabeth remember that you have a great future before you and pray do not suffer yourself to be depressed by any remarks which envy or malice might dictate to those who feel themselves your inferiors in accomplishments and personal appearance your fate is in your own hands my dearest girl and it is you alone who can hinder by a foolish preference of which i cannot think with common patience can hinder the very high advancement which i feel assured fortune holds in reserve for you but i venture to believe that your absurd admiration of mr f is a thing of the past think my love of the delight you would feel in being mistress of a brilliant establishment in finding yourself the centre of an aristocratic and fashionable circle invited to state balls and royal garden parties <laughs> and then contrast this picture with the vision of some obscure parsonage its sunday school its old women in black bonnets that species of black bonnet which i imagine must be a natural product of the soil in agricultural districts so inevitable is its appearance and i can hardly believe there are people still living who would voluntarily make a thing of that shape look upon this picture my dearest girl and then on that as pope or some other old-fashioned writer has observed and let reason be your guide easter i am pleased to see falls early this year by which means we shall have done with lent before the fine weather begins i shall expect you as soon after easter sunday as your papa can manage to bring you to this visit she looked forward as a release from that life which had of late become worse than bondage but even in this looking forward there was an element of despair she might have balls and garden parties and pleasures without number she might wear fine dresses and sun her beauty in the light of admiring eyes but she would see malcolm ford no more would it not be happier for her to be thus divided than to see him day by day and every day become more assured of his indifference yes she told herself and in that whirlpool of london life was it likely she would be for ever haunted by his image it's this mariana in the moated grange kind of life that's killing me she said to herself as she sat by her turret window preferring her fireless bedroom to the society of her sisters watching the winter rain fall slowly in the drenched garden and the dripping sundial by which she had stood so often talking to malcolm ford in the summer that was gone it was arranged that mr luttrell and his third daughter should go to london on the thirtieth of march the vicar treating himself to a week's holiday in town after the fatigue of the easter services a burden which was chiefly borne by the broad shoulders of malcolm ford toward the end of february therefore elizabeth was able to occupy herself with the pleasing task of preparing for the visit a business which involved a good deal of dressmaking and a greater outlay than the vicar approved he grumbled and endured however as he had grumbled and endured when gertrude and diana spread their young pinions for their brief flight into those fashionable skies it seems a nonsensical waste of money he said with a doleful sigh as he wrote a final clearing-up cheque for the hawley dressmaker and i don't suppose that your visit will result in anything more than your sister's visits 
but maria would lead me a life if i refused to let you go i beg your pardon papa exclaimed gertrude pray do not make any comparison between elizabeth and us she belongs to quite a different order of being and is sure to make a brilliant match it's not to be supposed that the world can overlook her merits i don't know about that said the vicar with a rueful glance at the figures on his cheque but this seems a large amount to pay for dressmaking i think girls in your position the daughters of a professional man ought to make your own gowns oh the bill isn't all for dressmaking papa miss march has found the material said elizabeth waiving the question of what a girl in her position ought or ought not to do the trimmings are rather expensive perhaps but dresses are so much trimmed nowadays yes that's what i hear on every side when i complain of my bills replied the vicar butcher's meat is so much dearer nowadays says the cook fodder has risen since last month says the groom russia is consuming our coals and prices are mounting daily says the coal merchant but unhappily my income is not so elastic that is a fixed quantity and i fear the time is at hand when to make that square with our necessities will be something like attempting to square the circle the luttrell girls were accustomed to mild wailings of this kind when the paternal cheque-book had to be produced and cheques were signed as reluctantly as if they had been death warrants waiting for the sign manual of a tender-hearted king so they were not deeply impressed by this threat of future destitution they gave their minds very cheerfully to the preparation of their summer clothing envied elizabeth those extra garments provided for her approaching visit quarrelled and made friends again after the manner of sisters whose affection is tempered by certain individual failings frivolous as the distraction might be this choosing of colours and materials and trying on of new apparel served to brighten the bleak days of a blusterous march with a feeble light elizabeth thought just a little less of her hopeless wasted love while miss march's head apprentice was coming to the vicarage every day with patterns of gimps and fringes and laces and ruchings for the selection whereof all the sisters had to be convened like a synod even gertrude and diana were not altogether ill-natured and gave themselves up to these deliberations with a friendly air while blanche flung herself into the subject with youthful ardour and wound up her approval of every article by the declaration that she would have one like it when she went to aunt chevenix for her london season or perhaps you'll be married and have a town-house lizzie and i shall come to you which would be much nicer than being under auntie's thumb and of course you'd enjoy bringing out a younger sister viscountess paulyn on her marriage by lucretia viscountess paulyn miss blanche lutterell by her sister viscountess paulyn wouldn't that look well in the local papers End of chapter eleven